0: Hello and welcome back to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 86 um, and uh, just before I introduce today's guest expert, I'd just like to uh, point folks to our website at guruperformance.com if you want to find out all previous We Do Science podcast episodes. There's loads of them now, um, loads more coming, so please ch- keep checking the website. You can um, also get this uh not just from the website for direct downloads, but you can also um, subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, and all sorts of ways. So just go to our website. You'll also learn about our continuing professional education program in sports science and performance nutrition, which is credited by ACSM, uh, NSCA, uh, the UK BDA, and Sports and Exercise Nutrition Register, and others. So just go to guruperformance.com. So back to today's episode, episode 86, I have Dr. Travis Thomas from the University of Kentucky. Hi, Travis. How are you doing?
1: Hi, good afternoon, Laura.
0: Yeah, well, good afternoon for you. Yeah, no, it is. It's still afternoon for me. You tricked me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so used to having people from all over over the world, Um, and it's a pleasure to have you um, all the way from Kentucky. Perhaps you could just introduce yourself, Travis, um, as to who you are and, and what you're up to. Sure. Um, I
1: am now an Associate Professor of Clinical and Sports Nutrition at the University of Kentucky. And um, at UK, the other UK, I, am, um, I wear many different hats. I have a strong um, service and teaching interest in, in sports nutrition. Uh, I'm involved with SCAN, which is a dietary practice group of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, where I serve um, many leadership roles uh, in that organization. Um, But again, a strong teaching interest, uh, graduate students in sports nutrition, performance nutrition. We're also growing at the University of Kentucky, where we have recently opened a sports medicine research institute. Um, which the primary focus is on the special operator, uh, so marine support personnel, special operators improving their performance, optimizing performance, prevention of injury. Uh, um, that's really my focus areas, but as far as research goes, um, that's about 50% of what I do. Um, the way I describe my research interest, they're basically clinical um, nutrition ideas, uh, um, or sports nutrition ideas, I should say, that I'm applying to um, sick populations, aging populations, my funded research areas are in the area of uh, vitamin D repletion and muscle metabolic um, function in aging, and I'm also going to look at that um, in cancer cachexia, hopefully, moving forward, and um, also we're looking at beetroot juice supplementation to preserve muscle function in um, head and neck cancer patients here at UK. So those are my funded research interests.
0: Brilliant. Yeah. So it occurs to me you're in the UK and I'm in the UK. (laughs) So of course, I don't know if you've listened to many many or any of these podcasts, but I'm very much into the concept of context. So of course, that is a classic case of the UK, but in different contexts. So Travis, I uh, was very excited to have you on to this podcast today. Um, You are Um, one of the lead authors of the new joint position statement on nutrition and athletic performance. Um, And this was a joint position statement between the American College of Sports Medicine, Dietitians of Canada, and um, the, oh, you guys keep changing your name, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. That's correct, isn't it? Correct, the Academy,
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: And um, sort of a recurring theme throughout my, my podcast here is we're talking about, yes, the science as it relates to performance, uh, nutrition, and a little bit more broadly occasionally on exercise science, but with huge amounts of context. And I'm very interested in the relationships and interrelationships between knowledge, context, and practice. That's where my own research goes. And the development of expertise um, for for us and for those listeners that are um, wanting to become or are developing their own expertise in performance, nutrition, some or an allied profession which utilizes aspects of performance nutrition. And we we sort of constantly discuss various snippets of science, uh, mechanistic studies, um applied concepts um and we're all you know usually the guest expert is usually an author or one of the authors of of the papers that we often refer to which is very cool but um what i really really enjoy is a position stand it's the sort of the the coolest or the sexiest of all publications in my opinion and this one um and i'm not just saying this I, I really feel this is pretty much at the top top of the stack of all position stands that i've I've managed to uh, get my hands on lately um, but before we, we get into parts of this and there's no way for the next 50 odd minutes we're going to be able to get through this whole position stand and like I said we may or may not have a part two to this, we'll see how we go but um, perhaps you could explain um, um, what a position stand actually is for listeners and and, and why this unique collaboration between those three bodies. Okay, so yeah, there's a pretty good history of
1: this. Um, the last paper that was published was um, actually back in 2009, so um, it, we certainly needed this um, refresher um, to look at the all the emerging trends and changes in, in sports nutrition and, and performance nutrition. Um, the, the paper itself is an evidence-based analysis that spanned between um, March 2006 all the way to late um, 2014. And it was built, the paper was built to address key questions in in sports nutrition um, that were identified by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics by an independent work group um, that helped um, build what was called the Evidence Analysis Library, where an expert team that was really separate from the authors. They were independent from our efforts. They come up with their their own separate questions that they felt was important in, in the realm of sports nutrition and they developed this um, evidence analysis and system, uh, systematic review to come up with consensus statements and, and conclusion statements that be um, used in the paper. And uh, we incorporated in the paper to address all the emerging trends in sports nutrition
0: yeah and i you know as i referred to earlier i you know there's all sorts of information that exists out there we certainly got into all sorts of stuff on this podcast but it's really nice to have a position stand because it's one of those sort of go-to documents that um if you found yourself on a desert island and you managed to find someone to attend a nutrition consultation on your desert island and you couldn't bring your entire library or you didn't have access to the internet then a position stand is, is one hell of a useful tool, particularly if it's up to date. Um, so, um, the, the I mean, there's so many things that I, I do want to get into, but right in the abstract, Travis, I thought there was a couple of great phrases. Um, and I'm just going to par- paraphrase one of them, which is um, essentially the position stand, which is that the performance of and recovery from sporting activities are enhanced by well-chosen nutrition strategies. And I felt that that, that that phrase well chosen nutrition strategies could could have done with sort of, you know, um, some sort of underlining or whatever, because that's such an important statement. There are huge amounts of um, papers out there, there's all sorts of knowledge that may or may not be based on good science. Um, mm-hmm. But for us as practitioners, the challenge is, is is what you know, what information do we choose? um and um at what point is it appropriate to actually use that information in an intervention you know give to do i give the advice or not to give the advice is sort of a scenario and of course you know and i've mentioned this in the last few podcasts particularly that sports nutrition is is pretty much the 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 newest kid on the block in in sports science um and it's an incredibly fluid science so of course things keep changing you know what we what we were talking about as almost fact only a few years ago we've now discovered you know that actually it's not the case you know there's there's some other point of view because there's huge developments in uh, laboratory techniques and um, equipment for testing and all sorts of stuff so if we go back to that that statement of well chosen nutrition strategies as it relates to the need for this position statement um what what you know what can you tell us about um, that and, 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 and I guess why you lot felt the need to produce this now?
1: Uh, well, the the well-chosen statement um, is, is actually something I think we all, all the authors felt pretty strongly about because we, we believe that um, one of the challenges that um, practitioners face, athletes face um, with themselves as far as deciding what the best plan is, I think a lot of times there's a focus on one particular aspect um, a, as a way to um, improve performance or uh, sustain health during um, extreme or um, high levels of training. Um, and because of this, I, I think the, the well-chosen uh, diet is, is, or the practice of choosing um, um, healthy foods, for example, is often lost. Um, a great example of that is dietary supplements. Um, I think oftentimes people are looking for the quick fixes to help improve performance or sustain performance, and uh, again, oftentimes that, that the well-chosen diet aspect is, is lost and not usually followed up with.
0: Yeah, you know, and again, um, I, again, in your position statement, right at the beginning, and in the abstract, you say that these organizations um, within this document provides guidelines for the appropriate type, amount, and timing of food intake. Fluids and dietary supplements to promote optimal health and sport performance across different scenarios of training and competitive sport. And, you know, although that's only um, a few sen- is a sentence that's only a few words long, it's a profound statement, really, because one, I guess, criticism that can be levied at uh, sports nutrition. Uh, generally is is it is often promoted that sort of a one-size-fits-all approach now obviously lots of researchers have made a point that that isn't the case but a lot of people interpret that information i you know we all need um um loads of, of carbohydrate all the time for example yes um you know um we don't uh, we should always be super lean you know we should have a, a certain we should strive to achieve a certain percentage body fat all those sorts of things but what seems to be emerging is the importance of individualization um, and this concept of periodization which I've discussed many many a time and I was so pleased to see that um, um, in this um, position stand um, it's it, maybe this is a difficult question but you know the, the in terms of all the information that's out there, trying to pack that into a position stand, how is it that you came to, uh, I guess, whittle it down to these key areas that we'll, we'll hopefully get into?
1: Oh, that is kind of um, <laughs> tough. Um, well, I, I don't know. I, I think I, I kind of look at it as... You start with energy, um, energy intake, energy needs, energy availability. And then when you think about it that way, you, you, you start thinking about the, um, the interest in the relative energy deficiency in sport and the uh, female athlete triad. So this, that starts uh, naturally um, being folded into your ideas to develop the paper. And then you, from there, you go into the specific um, macronutrients. And then as we laid out, we, we, we looked at micronutrients as well, and then dietary supplements and extreme environments. So it almost it, was, it naturally occurred. Um, I don't know how else to, to explain that. And then when we got into the uh, individual areas, I mean, we, we just focused on our, um, I, I think, individual expertise as authors, and we, we continued to share our ideas and thoughts through Skype calls and we shared drafts and, um, new ideas came in as we, um, incorporated the evidence analysis library, but also, um, our own review of the literature, the current literature. But in, in, in talking about the well-chosen diet, I mean, we, we, we tried to bring up, um, um, or, or focus on the less global recommendations for athletes and and not categorizing athletes as strength or endurance anymore, which was um, in the previous position stand and, and focusing on the periodization and, and looking at changes in frequency, intensity and duration, the environment um, that the athlete is in um, and how those all change um, and contribute to nutrition goals and requirements that are not static.
0: It's exciting, isn't it? It's really, really yes. exciting. I, I mean, you, you know, you work in other areas that that go just beyond performance nutrition. Although, and I, I do mention this a lot because I love this concept that you know we, we do need to recognise, of course, that that athletes are human beings first. So health and and how we broadly understand that word has all sorts of ramifications for how we approach our. Our lifestyles and, and our nutrition, specifically um, because a healthy person will have, um, you know, will be someone who adapts better to training, um, they'll recover better. Uh, but, you know, um, I guess there's a lot of context needed there because there are scenarios which we hopefully will have time to get into. Like in a state of energy uh, deficit, you can still perform very well, yes. um, it just depends in what situation. So I guess we should start then with um this idea of evidence based analysis um I, I sort of go in and out um uh, in and out of love with this word evidence based because as a practitioner, I prefer the term informed um if someone is just evidence-based, they forget the bigger picture of the world that they, you know, are in. Therefore, I prefer to be informed as opposed to purely just evidence-based. However, um, I think we all get the point here. Um, Now, obviously, there's a lot of information you guys would have to have gone through. Um, Could you give us a bit of a clue then about how actually you approach this evidence analysis?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that because um, the way this paper like the, the, the process of writing this paper, a two-year process, um, it, it's kind of already set up, to, it was set up to address this uh, because, again, we had this independent um, team that did the evidence-based analysis, that created these evidence statements and provided um, an, a, a value for the, the weight of the current evidence. They looked at the best research designs and, and the system, going through the systematic, uh, systematic review process. Now, once we received that, the author team, me, um, Louise, and Kellyanne Erdman, we took that information and we kind of folded it in to, to, as you put it, to be well-informed, to to make the audience well-informed, to incorporate the evidence base, also with our experiences in sports nutrition and clinical nutrition, to frame the message that we felt is most important
0: yeah i i mean i love that about this document i i i felt that it was helping me understand the context in which i should be understanding this information which is a huge problem isn't it i mean how do you just to backtrack a bit about generally how practitioners take information you know um, from journals from textbooks from what they learn in class um, social media that sort of thing you know not everyone has um, an evidence filter um, or a, or a way of approaching this, or they're too they're too strict with that. Um, how I mean, generally speaking, how how significant do you think that is as a problem in in terms of practice or not?
1: As far as the available evidence,
0: yeah, yeah,
1: I, I think it's a significant problem. I, I think there's a lot of papers that are being published that are not of uh, high quality. Um, at poor research designs and I think um, for instance you know you see dietary supplement companies take that information and, and frame it their own way to promote their product I think it's very easily that those that sort of information is very easily extracted by um, personal trainers and and many folks who may not be informed with the evidence-based analysis process and, and I think a lot of messages that are inappropriate or are are certainly passed among the community of of trainers and and it gets to athletes and i think it is a big problem
0: yeah i think i mean the the other one um is you know nutrition advice in the hands of the right person can be a profoundly powerful tool in the same way a scalpel you know um in a surgeon's hand can be a great tool, but in the wrong hands, it can be potentially dangerous. I mean, it's maybe not quite the same thing as a scalpel type and, scenario, but, but that is a factor, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. And I, and I think there's a problem with um, athletes and maybe many other consumers who are what we consider recreational athletes who... Um, are, are not understanding or seeing the, the financial conflict of interest that many people who promote their ideas, or, or take some of the literature to promote their product, I don't think they, they see that. Uh, they don't see the problem that, that uh, is associated with that, um, and, and miss out on some of the best science, I believe, and the messages that um, we, we try to uh, portray.
0: No, absolutely. And I, you know, I, I mean, you actually mentioned this in the paper under new perspectives in sports nutrition, you, you know, you, you guys have made a comment about in the past decade alone, there has been an enormous increase in the number of, of topics and, and publications, you know, on these sorts of topics. I mean, it's just exploding. It's amazing. Um, but like you say, so does the, um, you know, the, uh, the quantity of rubbish. Um, uh, and it's very difficult to be able to separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of of quality evidence, which is why it's great to have guys like yourselves do that on our behalf and produce something like a position stand.
1: Yeah, I I do want to kind of give some Mm. credit to the the authors as well. I think we had a very, very unique team. Mm. I mean, Louise Burke, um, 35 plus years experience as a practitioner, a scientist, over 250 publications in sports nutrition, really focused on the elite athlete. Kellyanne Erdman, uh, she's not only a, a wonderful practitioner in Canada, but she also has a history of as an Olympic athlete, um, a, a cyclist. And then, uh, and then, you know, my focus has been more on, even though I'm a practitioner in sports nutrition, we're all practitioners uh, on the authorship team, I really have a strong background in clinical nutrition, and, I, and I'm kind of more focused on the recreational athlete and the messages that the recreational athletes um, receive. Mm. Um, so I think coming together, we all brought very strong opinions, and and in um, reviewing the, the available literature, and I think that certainly left a mark on on this paper.
0: Yeah, and I I think it's a very important thing that I take from this, and the reason why I value a position stand of this quality um, so highly, is because it's not just written by yes, competent researchers, um, but by people who have substantial experience and expertise. um, And therefore you're able to to mold and manipulate that information um, with with a degree of um, ethical consideration, um, with a degree of mastery, which is important. Um, We all know how dangerous this information can be if inappropriately understood. So it's a very difficult task. in the interests of uh, time, because we clearly can't go through the whole paper, and I will reference this paper, the link, it's um, open access, there's three different versions actually. I thought that was interesting too, the way ACSM has their version, the Academy has their version, and so on. But I'll link to all of them. Um, and uh, folks must read this, I, I highly recommend this to the point that this is one of those things you carry around with you if you are in any way involved in performance nutrition, this is a superb resource. So let's just quickly go through um, um, a few parts of this paper, then, because I love the way there's themes. You've got different kinds of themes. If you just quickly tell us about the themes, we won't go into them specifically. But what what sort of themes does your paper approach?
1: So basically, we start out with the new perspectives in, in sports nutrition and, and focusing on nutrition um, for athlete preparation, um, and that's really broken down into energy requirements, energy balance, and energy availability. Um, where we we introduce the the relative energy deficiency in sport and some of the challenges and the importance of of measuring that or trying to understand that. Um, We provide an update in body composition within that theme and the um, methodologies for um, assessing body composition. And, um, and then we, we provide a broad overview within that first theme of, um, nutrient requirements for sport, um, involving, um, energy needs, um, uh, carbohydrate, protein, fat, and alcohol. Um, alcohol is something I feel pretty strongly about because we don't get a lot of great information in the literature about alcohol, but athletes continue to use it. I so, sure um, so I certainly wanted to have that in there. Um, Theme two uh, really is focusing focusing on more of the the timing and looking at performance nutrition strategies to optimize performance and recovery. So we're looking at pre, during, and post-event eating as well as hydration. Um, So before exercise, during exercise, and after exercise, we're we're focused on uh, providing information on all the macronutrients as well as fluid requirements. And um, then we also talk about dietary supplements within that theme. And then we end the, the paper by bringing up special, uh, special populations and environments. The, the previous position paper only had a discussion of vegetarian athletes. So we've expanded that greatly to include um, the effects of altitude, extreme environments, heat and cold, um, on, and how that affects nutrition needs. And, and the, the final component of the paper are, are roles and responsibilities of the sports dietitians, um, things that the, the sports dietitian um, should be feel confident in covering in the realm of sports nutrition in order to um, provide the best information to the athlete.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's great. Do you know what, Travis? I have decided, um, nothing like thinking on my feet, that what we're going to do is tackle this over several podcasts um, oh, okay. do this justice. Yeah, and um, and then maybe we can also get some of the other authors involved, maybe in certain parts. But um, what we'll do now is is we'll just go into um, uh, some of those sort of new perspectives in sports nutrition and and some of the um, important. Um, components that everyone needs to be mindful of so almost like a summary type approach and then in the other podcast we'll break down each theme uh, that's that would be right, yeah. Yeah, yeah that way we can do this justice because it, it's such a big topic so let, let's get into the first area then and, and you make a big point of this and this is an incredibly important one and that is that nutrition goals and requirements are not static now what, what, what did you actually mean by that
1: it means that we can't, for instance, with protein, we can't just provide a, a specific daily protein amount and assume that the athlete requires that same amount of protein every day over the course of their um, athletic um, career, but also during um, their, their different training sessions that would occur, their periodization over the course of the um, competition cycle.
0: Mm. So, we've so dis- yeah, go- sorry, I was just mentioning we've discussed concepts like periodization and periodized nutrition, so um, the listeners should go back to those, uh, to those episodes, sorry I, I butted in there.
1: So um, yeah, uh, so, so protein is, you know, one of the, uh, everyone's interested in, in the protein recommendations and, and the, the literature and uh, the evidence that Stu Phillips provides and Luke Van Loon, uh, all their great work, um, we certainly incorporated a lot of that and where this, um, the science is moving in that area. But um, how protein needs can change uh, based on a new training stimulus, for example. Um, uh, an individual may need more protein during that time. Um, a, a, an experienced athlete who's not experiencing new um, training stresses um, may require less. They become more efficient in, in, in protein turnover. Um, so all within that range, uh, we uh, certainly a, a change in daily protein needs um, uh, the general recommendation is 1.2 to 2 grams per kilogram per day, but athletes will constantly change based on where they're at in their training cycle.
0: And it, it, you know, it, it is such an important factor. This because it, it's so often that you see the same cookie cutter, one size fits all nutrition plan, whether it's in a in a more recreational setting, you know, in gyms, health clubs, that sort of thing, all the way through college. Uh, re- college team recommendations and even an elite sport it's only recently really that i have started to see people give um nutrition reco- recommendations that are periodized as opposed to um you know uh, this is what you know like i said right at the beginning you know just eat loads of carbs make sure you've got protein rich food and it's sort of a one pager um, yeah it's, it's really much more complicated than that. <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> well yeah you spent uh, you kind of spent all that time in university just to produce a Um, one-pager and and, um, not only should they not be static but um, insofar as people's needs change day-to-day throughout the season um, but also each individual themselves is different Um, different positions different sizes different weights different tasks require different energy systems so of course it needs to be personalized right
1: absolutely and um, we address that throughout the paper
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I love that. So um, another area that you get into is the idea that, that um, a key goal of training is to adapt the body to develop metabolic efficiency and flexibility. Now, I love the concept of metabolic efficiency and flexibility, I've, I've done quite a few uh, podcasts in this. In fact, I've got a, a paper, a case study paper on a triathlete I'm, I'm currently writing up for um, a publication on this topic. Um, this idea that, um, because there's been a lot of people that have been tapping into this whole debate about going low carb or high carb, or, you know, this lot, you know, what we want is metabolic efficiency. Let's just all go keto adapted. And then the others are going, no, 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 we need carbohydrates, um, for uh, supreme performance. But, but, but people aren't really looking at it from the perspective of the best of both worlds. Why not be efficient and flexible whilst being competition ready when you need to? Um, perhaps you could expand on that a little bit.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting topic, and uh, we, we we tried to cover this as best as we could without providing a, a, many examples, just because there's not many. There's not. There wasn't a lot of room in the paper. Um, that was a big challenge we had in trying to cut it down um, in words, because we wanted to expand so much in this area. But what I, what I would say is that. Um, when I think about metabolic efficiency and flexibility, it really starts with our ability or the athlete's ability to um, use carbohydrate and maximize carbohydrate metabolism in order to, um, to, to maximize the ATB utilization. And, um, and, and that's kind of a difficult thing to accomplish in a, a low-carbohydrate, high-fat um, um, scenario. Um, in that, even though we may see an increase in in some um, fat oxidation um, we 're very clear about um, if, if athletes want to train or compete at high intensities there 's not really a performance benefit of the low carbohydrate high fat diet
0: yeah it, it, I mean uh, listeners who 've managed to get through the eighty five episodes that i 've done already will see we 've covered this in great detail and <laughs> You see, the thing is, is in it, and we use this throughout our lives, don't we? We're keeping things simple just makes life simpler, we think. But in reality, it doesn't because it all gets taken out of context. So we know that, you know, blah, 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 improve, increases fat oxidation. But fat oxidation doesn't necessarily equal fat burning as it relates to loss of body fat because there's a lot of stuff going on.
1: There's a ton of stuff going on, so yeah. certainly. And I think this message has been taken, unfortunately, to, I think, promote a lot of agendas. Mm. Unfortunately, in eating styles and, and lifestyles um, that are not conducive to optimal athletic performance.
0: Well, also, I guess, the one problem is is there's, there's a problem with language, and there's a problem with um, information being standardized. Uh, and by that, I mean, People talk about high, high carbohydrate diets, low carbohydrate diets, high protein, low protein. But because they're not defining what they mean by high carb and low carb, um, it just becomes a big mess. Everything gets taken out of context. Yeah,
1: we, we try to move away from that too. Yeah. It it's really isn't high carb, it's, it's high availability. Yeah. Um, to support a specific activity and to support metabolic flexib- flexibility during times of high, um, when, when high intensity is required.
0: Absolutely. And that was the perfect segue to the next topic. So energy availability is a term that um, has started to pop up in the uh, literature. It certainly is addressed in, in your paper. Perhaps you could explain the importance of, of that concept of energy availability so, yeah
1: so briefly um, energy availability is the amount of energy that's required to support body system health after the cost of energy expenditure of exercise is um, accounted for and this is a, a measure that is um, that is uh, also um, calculated by um, fat free mass as well. And this energy availability, we're finding is more and more important to support several body systems. Um, So we're expanding beyond what is traditionally defined uh, within the female athlete triad to only be a concern of of bone health, uh, menstrual health, Um, but it's also uh, low energy availability can not only affect performance, but it can affect cognitive um, function, which can certainly impact performance. But several other body systems um, that um, can affect the athlete's overall performance ability and also their their health.
0: And you know something that um, becomes quite obvious the more you read around in sports nutrition is there can be a little bit too much of an obsession over terms or or goals that are specifically only performance. So for example um, we, we talk about you know, uh, hitting um, leucine thresholds, you know, to um, maximize MPS, mu- muscle protein synthesis. Or we talk about um, eating protein. But actually, we don't just eat um, protein, we eat foods that contain protein because we have needs that go beyond the needs to achieve, um, uh, you know, MPS. for example. Um, so, for example, um, one obsession we have, of course, is body composition. And oftentimes you see people approaching body composition um, with blatant disregard, uh, not just to potential performance, but more importantly to health. Um, so, where you know, in that in that particular area, um, uh, you know, what are your what are your thoughts
1: as far as body composition? Yeah, yeah. yeah this um,
0: idea of, of not just being focused just on one thing. Um, yeah.
1: Um, well, we I think we're pretty clear to to say that there, there's no one specific body composition threshold or or, or percent body fat that um, um, is a good um, predictor of athletic performance, and um, there are certainly several um, body fat percentages for for instance that can support athletic performance and. And the use of, uh, anytime we use body composition methodologies and we're, we're, we're discussing the outcomes with the athletes, is important to, to make sure they're aware that um, we should probably focus more on healthy ranges instead of a specific um, amount, but also understand, um, they should understand a little bit about what goes into the methodology of body composition assessment, and that is not 100% accurate. And that they have a role in um, in being properly hydrated, for example, um, in coming into the measurements. And even when everything's perfect, there's still a percent error associated with it. It's just a tool. It's one tool to help them achieve their goals.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I've explored lots of these areas. A recent podcast was with Dr. Sean Arendt at Rutgers. And uh, we really got into the whole issues of body composition. And the more I read into it, and a very interesting um uh, I think it was a position stand by the IOC uh, one of their consensus statements on these things and um, it, it it is worrying just how much faith some people or many people will put into these tools um, without thinking about what it means and what it doesn't mean um and and just how far people will take that information in terms of their nutrition interventions and and guidelines I mean what you know do you, I mean what do you think about that
1: Oh, um, I, I certainly agree with that, and I, I think we, we certainly, we spent more time discussing those concerns than we did the actual uh, measurement techniques, mm. but we certainly felt that it was important to bring up the limitations associated with all body composition, um, and, and then you know, also bring up you know, some of the more potentially practical um, applications of body composition methodologies, such as in-fold measurements. Um, but again, limitations is really the focus, and, um, and the caution associated with using body composition techniques was certainly some, something that we wanted to um, um, provide information on in the paper. Um, for instance, it's just there's different techniques and methodologies for skinfold all all around the world, and um, and that certainly contributes to some of the confusion that we see.
0: Absolutely, I had a, an athlete the other day who was really upset because um, they had uh, recently had a reassessment with a DEXA for their body composition. Yeah. And it had really affected this person. They, they'd put everything in to following the advice um, from their uh, team practitioner. There's yeah, I really a- think there
1: needs to be more education uh- with all athletes who oh. are going to take part in body composition measures, I almost feel like it should be a prerequisite well, they, they should. for they well,
0: involved. I agree. No, tell you well, what, what I was going to say was um, on analysis, uh, basically what happened is, is, is this guy had uh, apparently lost muscle mass and gained some body fat. But the problem at hand was that um, although they were both DEXA reports, they weren't from the same machine. Um with the same software, they weren't the same locations, they weren't the same um times of day, times of year, stage of season, um different opera there were so many things that differentiated this. But critically they they were DEXA, yes, but they weren't the same machine. That in itself was a problem. Um but it what struck me was the the Psychological impact that it had on this guy who Absolutely. actually ended Absolutely. up eating and drinking was one of his coping mechanisms. Um, so we have to be careful about our use of these technologies and the impact that that information can actually have.
1: Yeah, I, I would say that we could very well do more harm than good, yeah, unless we take education seriously. Um, early on, or I, I don't think it's useful. Mm. I mean, I, I mean, because it's all the harm that could be potentially caused by. Um, results that are provided without any education, I mean, could really be doing a disservice.
0: Completely agree, completely agree. So um, going back to uh, some of these new perspectives then, so um, and, and I, I don't want to keep saying like I've done podcasts on this, but I have. So there's some very interesting topics, one of which really interests me is this relationship that training and nutrition can have um, and, and their interactions um, and how that can influence um, adaptations, uh, positively or negatively. These are things that we weren't talking about so much before, and that's partly because of the developments in molecular biology, our understanding of, of signaling processes, which for me has really made things like nutritional periodization very, very interesting. Um, I mean, perhaps you could expand on that concept a bit for us.
1: I guess one what, what particular area that are you interested in I, I immediately start thinking about um, low carbohydrate intake and how that could potentially change. Um, yeah, I mean, let's
0: go, I mean, obviously folks yeah. can read, read the paper and there's other podcasts to listen to, and we'll do more podcasts as stages for this, but um, as by way of an example then, perhaps you could tell us about that. Yeah, um, it, it seems
1: that um, this, this carbohydrate restriction or in times of low carbohydrate availability, what, what, could very, what, what we have evidence of, of, of happening is that we, we could very well have an increase in um, the expression of proteins involved in several metabolic pathways that Suggest improved metabolic efficiency, or an improvement in, in, in fat oxidation, or or, or fat uh, metabolic pathways associated with fat metabolism. Um, now, the problem with this um, evidence is that um, I think many uh, much of this evidence is being um, translated into advice to do uh, a lot of carbohydrate restriction. Mm. And, and I think what, what we're seeing in practice is that many athletes are already kind of doing this, and, and they're not aware of it. And it could be simply um, described as an athlete who trains early in the morning um, uh, without breakfast. So that athlete is going. Uh, it's training under a low-carbohydrate availability state. So they may be benefiting from some of these observed um, um, changes in metabolic pathways that, that we see in the, in, in the science and the research. Um, and they don't necessarily need additional carbohydrate restriction. Okay? Or there, it could be an athlete that is participating in multiple training sessions um, um, within close proximity. Um, To one another, so and and that may be promoting a low carbohydrate state as well. That may be changing some, uh, or or changing or uh, adapting some of these pathways that may be
0: beneficial. Absolutely. So we address that. And what you you know, what it brings to mind is um, uh, a topic that came up. I mentioned Sean Aaron earlier. um, We were talking about these sorts of things and. you know uh, for practitioners there's so many tools in the toolbox and that's what a lot of this stuff is it's tools in the toolbox and yes you can use a tool in a given job but you have to ask yourself should you so this idea of yes you can but should you is one that I feel that we don't get practitioners to think about enough um, you know it's it sort of it's like using a sledgehammer to uh, you know drive a small nail um, into something it, it can be used but it's probably not the best tool you can use and, and perhaps it's this use and abuse of of these tools that becomes a problem which is why obviously a position stand is so useful
1: mm-hmm. yeah and I, you know I, maybe this is it's kind of my opinion associated with this but I think oftentimes is lost what's lost is the importance of just truly understanding the athletes energy expenditure their training load And then combining that or overlaying that with their their current dietary practice. Is their dietary practice well chosen? Mm. Um, Understanding that first. um, And I can see how this is not as sexy as jumping right into um, a new paper that came out about a specific dietary supplement or um, being keto adaptive or or things like that that are, are emerging areas of interest. But it really should all start with a, a proper and thorough assessment of, of training load and understanding the, the, the overall diet of the athlete and their practice and behaviors.
0: Yeah, and I mean we should always remember preference, of course. It's a very very yeah. powerful thing. Doesn't matter how cool your intervention is, if they don't if they don't like it, they're not gonna do it.
1: Yeah, understanding their stressors, their alcohol intake, which, again, I thought was so important to add to the paper. Their sleeping habits. I mean, there's so many things um, before we get into specific uh, or focusing on one recommendation.
0: Yeah, and I, so I like the way um, you use the analogy of a tightrope um, when describing how highly trained athletes walk a tightrope uh, between training hard enough to achieve those maximal training stimuli to get those adaptations they want for maximum performance. And yet, um, you know, the potential for slipping uh, and falling into some sort of illness or injury scenario, which of course is where us as performance nutritionists, sports nutritionists, may be able to play a positive role. Um, Perhaps you could give us maybe an idea of, of, of what you meant or what you what the authors meant by that statement. Um,
1: well, it's just the, the idea that an athlete who, who's trained very hard and um, could continue to um, potentially walk down the road of, of training harder um, by not providing the optimal nutrition support that they need to continue to adapt and, and to be healthy. So I, I think the, the role of the sports dietitian here is to help the, the athlete um, walk that type of road, to optimize their performance but also maintain their health. And recognizing this as a problem that all sports dietitians and professionals should be aware of. um, That that the commitment of the athlete and the potential risk that they have of of overtraining.
0: So, you know, when we talk about athletes, obviously, um, we frequently talk about training. And we also talk about competition. But of course, they have to add all this up into... um, uh, their lifestyle, and they're both training and competing. And in the case of, say, football, uh, soccer players, for example, there's uh, uh, you know, within just a week, there might be um, multiple training sessions and even potentially multiple competing sessions. Um, um, that there's all sorts of variety, and obviously, there's many different types of athletic events, there's different ways of approaching that. But to differentiate this idea of training, nutrition, and competition nutrition um perhaps you could give us a a sort of a quick um understanding of, of the difference between those two concepts
1: so yeah when we think about competition and nutrition we're thinking more about providing the optimal substrate to allow the athlete to perform at the intensity level that they're 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 shooting for, um, but at the same time, um, not providing any sort of negative consequences associated with, for example, um, GI distress. Um, So talking about specific timing of, or thinking about specific timing of of nutrients, carbohydrate, pre-post exercise, during exercise, and fluid intake, while training competition um, is more focused on the dietary pattern. Um, to support um, metabolic adaptation, um, um, muscle turnover, the uh, muscle protein synthesis associated with um, the meal distribution over the course of the day, um, overall diet quality, uh, just as an example. So training, is, training, um, training aspects are more associated with the dietary um, patterns. And then the competition nutrition is more associated with preparing the athlete for the upcoming event and recovering adequately from the event without causing additional problems.
0: Great, yeah, and, we're, and we will get into those thoroughly in um, the follow-up podcast to this. So for folks, you know, we're kind of limited in time here, and I know you don't have much time left, Travis, so um but um we will get into those areas um in parts two and i think three there's going to be three components to this but one area that i find really 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 exciting um is this new um, development um in our understanding of um what you call in here brain sensing that's Um, very cool very cool stuff very cool perhaps you could just quickly delve into that for us um, yeah, what we're, what we're
1: seeing now in the literature is there's pretty good evidence now that um, there are roles for several um, um, items that can be cons- um, placed in the oral cavity. It's not just carbohydrate. Carbohydrate was our focus in the paper, but there's evidence of um, you know, caffeine just in the oral cavity or quinine in the oral cavity, um, several other bitter substances. But what we're seeing is that this carbohydrate um, in the oral cavity as an oral rinse, can actually have an effect on um, central drive, um, so it's a it's a mechanism to where performance could be potentially improved in, in short, high-intensity efforts um, without uh, relying on any sort of metabolic aspect of, of carbohydrate. Um, so it's purely more of a central um, stimulant um, that could, in some cases, improve um, um, performance.
0: Yeah, I, I've actually uh, had first-hand experience um, or second-hand experience with one of my athletes who, uh, one of my rugby players a few seasons ago who um, was unable to tolerate his sports drink, uh, partly because of nerves, it would be some big games. So it's amazing because he's a big, huge rugby player, but he did get very nervous, he just couldn't stomach any food. And then I uh, had come across some of the uh, initial studies in this area, so we had the player just rouse, m- mouth rinse. And boy, did that make a difference! Um, and what you know, and that was fantastic because I literally had no other options, I didn't know what to do. And the fact that he doesn't have to ingest it still um, has some potential benefits absolutely blew my mind. And and that's why I find all this so exciting. We're not done yet, we're going to keep finding new techniques and strategies that are going to come out, which is why we need to understand all of those tools in the toolbox and know which ones to use um, because um, there are probably some amazing strategies that we can take advantage of if we learn about what these things are. Again, that's a reason for reading these. Um, I mean, yeah.
1: basically, I mean, anytime that you have frequent contact of, of carbohydrate um, with the mouth, again, it's not just that metabolic component. So this within this, your oral cavity, it can stimulate parts of the brain, um, central nervous system, um, enhance perceptions of well-being, um, and increase um, work output. So those, these are all areas that different athletes, certainly there's variation here, variability within between athletes, but um, it's certainly something that is is being explored in, in future research.
0: Yeah, of course. And, you know, the, 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 you mentioned uh, work rates in the paper, and, you know, we have various ways of looking at this, but perceived exertion um, is an important thing because although in the lab we might be able to achieve certain rates of work capacity, maximal power outputs, and so on, at the end of the day, there's a lot of things that will actually affect someone's ability to perform at their best. And obviously, we get into psychology. uh, There's all sorts of other parameters that can affect this, uh, any potential pain issues. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff. But the fact that nutrition can also influence perceived exertion, even even Mm -hmm. without having to worry about actually ingesting the subject, just mouth rinsing with it, is, is really, really cool.
1: Yeah. as you said, it, it seems to cover many areas, like mm-hmm. psychology and you know, probably that pain component as well, reducing that perceived effort of exertion. And it's, it's amazing we haven't looked at this earlier because we've known for quite some time that in providing an oral glucose solution, for example, in an infancy, can help an infant um, withstand medical procedures with less pain, less crying. Overall, so um, just a little tidbit there, but it's certainly something that I'm I'm interested and excited to follow. Yeah, um, no,
0: no, me too. I'm sure we all are. Um, And then uh, just finally, then um, the importance of um, actually being pragmatic. Um, You know, giving a pragmatic approach, taking a pragmatic approach to the advice that we give um, regarding the use of things like uh, supplements and, and sports foods. Uh, and, and not just those, generally our interventions, whether it's you know low-carb, um, super-high protein or whatever, we still need to bear in mind what people can actually do, what they want to do. Um, do you have anything to add well, to that? I'll say
1: this, Lauren. This, mm. this was the hardest part of the paper to mm. cover. And when you bring up the pragmatic approach to supplement use um, and, and the given space that we had to cover that, extremely difficult to, to cover I many different opinions um, several reviewer comments about um, being too anti supplement or being too pro supplement within the same review period um, was very interesting um, so we really took the approach of you know taking a step back and again understanding that the athletes and the practitioners that work with athletes should understand that again this well chosen diet better be covered Um, If there's going to be any performance benefit from a dietary supplement and understanding the cost benefit analysis and making sure athletes are aware of the risk associated with um, supplement use overall, just as a way to educate them and provide this baseline of knowledge for not only the athlete, but practitioners that work with the athletes to to try to prevent any trouble um, when you're going down that road of um, potentially recommending dietary supplements.
0: Yeah, well, we'll get into that in these next few podcasts. So basically, um, we've just sort of scratched the surface here. Um, We're going to talk about um, nutrition for athlete preparation. We're going to talk about competition nutrition, preparing for competition. And we're also going to talk about um, recovery as it relates to the position stand and the best available evidence that um, that you guys have put together in in this position stand so um, I guess what we'll do is because we're roughly at an hour here we'll we'll bring this particular sort of um, initial podcast to an end as I said we'll we'll be coming back to this with um, tackling each theme in a specific um, podcast um, um, so I will make sure on the website uh, page for this podcast we'll have links to these papers for people to read uh, and any information. I'll also put a link to your uh, um, department website, that sort of thing. Uh, are you on ResearchGate? Uh, yes, I am. Brilliant. So we'll we'll, get, we'll put that there as well so people can read your papers. And also your Twitter ID, what would that be?
1: Um, it's Dr. T underscore zero nine two six
0: brilliant well look, listen travis i i appreciate your time um we'll be having you back uh, maybe in a couple of weeks time where we can um then get on to the next uh, couple of phases of this position stand and really get into the meat um of the position stand as it relates to preparing athletes and uh competition um and potentially recovery we'll try and get all that into into that one podcast um so uh yes thank you for your time travis right, thank you you, yeah thank you and uh thank you all for listening uh we will be back very soon with another edition of this uh uh what i'm guessing at this point is a three-part uh we do science podcast on nutrition for athletic performance i of course am laurent bannock um please check out guruperformance.com for all our uh podcasts previous episodes show notes that sort of thing and also our professional education programs um, and such all at guruperformance.com thanks for listening